As many of you know who study Scripture on a regular basis, the Bible is filled with both theological instruction and teachings on practical Christian living. The Bible addresses both doctrine and practice. Certain passages deal exclusively with how we are to think about God and about man and sin, and others deal exclusively with how we are to live our lives and how to resist temptation and grow in godliness. There are passages that deal mainly with how we are to think and others that deal with how we are to live. At times in those practical portions of Scripture, the writer will address certain people in particular. For example, there might be a, a, a passage addressed to pastors and Christian leaders. We've been looking at a few of those, right? Uh, also, the church. Maybe specific instructions for men, women, parents, children, and so on. Well, today... We are in a practical portion in the book of Titus. And Paul is going to provide practical instruction for leaders once again, for older men and women, younger men and women, for wives, for parents. And there is even some application that is to be made for the employer-employee relationship as well. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2. We are continuing our series through Titus entitled The Right Kind of Church in a World Gone Wrong. Now remember, Paul is writing to his protege Titus, whom he left on the island of Crete to work with the churches there on how to remain strong and healthy, how to be built up in a broken and fallen world on a godless island where it is tempting to give in to the influences of the culture. In chapter 1, as you know, Paul mainly instructs the, the leaders in the church and who they are to be and how they are to function to help revitalize struggling churches so that they can be built up and so that they can remain healthy and strong. In chapter 2, the focus shifts. Paul's focus shifts from Titus and the elders, from pastors and church leaders to the church, to the congregation from the leadership to the laity. In this chapter, Paul provides very specific, straightforward, direct, practical instruction on what the church should be in a broken and fallen world. And this is a very practical portion of Scripture, as you will see. The Lord is concerned with the spiritual health of His church. His concern, get this, is not ultimately with the average attendance of his churches on Sunday morning or what they're running in Sunday school or the quality of the music program or whether or not the church is using the latest and greatest technology. Ultimately, the Lord is concerned with the spiritual health of the 50, 100, 400, 1,000 people that are in attendance at any one of his churches throughout the week. The 
reason why is because that's what's needed in a world going wrong. The church needs to be spiritually healthy so that it does not succumb to the temptations of the world. The church needs to be the place where people are coming to get equipped through the preaching and teaching of the word so that God's people are equipped to live the life that God has called for them to live. That's really what this chapter, Titus 2, is all about. A key word used throughout this book is the word sound. It occurs five times in three chapters. Whenever you come across it, underline it. That's what God wants. He wants the leaders and the laity in the local church to be sound. He, he wants his church to be spiritually healthy, sound in doctrine, Titus 1.9, sound in the faith, Titus 1.13. How does that happen? How does one become sound in thinking and living? Paul tells us through the biblical preaching and teaching of the word. To think rightly, one must first be taught how to think in accordance with God's word. To live rightly, one must be taught how to live in light of what God's word teaches. Again, that's what the book of Titus is all about. Biblical teaching leads to biblical thinking, which leads to biblical desires, which produces biblical living. And guess what? The opposite is also true. Disease doctrine leads to disease thinking, which leads to diseased desires, which produces diseased living. That's pretty practical, right? Well, while Paul shifts his focus in this chapter from the leaders to the congregation in the churches in Crete, he is still speaking primarily to Titus in and through him, and he begins by addressing the leaders once again. Let's look at Paul's message to the church. First, Paul's message to the leaders in Christ's church. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Notice the phrase, but as for you. Remember the context. At the end of Titus 1, Paul was speaking about the dangerous doctrines of those peddlers of error, those spiritual scam artists, those false teachers who, according to Titus 1.16, profess to know God but deny Him by their works. In contrast to them, Paul says, but as for you, Titus, you and the elders of the church in Crete, you teach what accords with sound Doctrine. Now notice that word sound. What did I tell you to do when you cross that word? Underline it. It's the word hugiano. That's where we get our word hygiene from. Paul is talking about a, a teaching that is healthy and wholesome. It's edifying. And what type of teaching is that? Biblical teaching. Paul, once again, is calling for Titus and the elders in Crete to combat this diseased teaching with what is healthy and wholesome, what builds up, what is edifying. Combat those teachings that tear the church apart with a teaching that builds up, teaching from the Word of God. Folks, that's the most important thing that we do at this church. More important than anything else, is that the church is preaching and teaching God's word. 
What builds a church up? What saves a church from being ripped apart? What makes a church healthy? Teaching what accords with sound doctrine. The, the instructions given here by Paul in the first chapter in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, they are my marching orders as a pastor of this church. I've been called by God to do this. To silence false teachers, Titus 1, and combat their teaching by teaching what accords with sound doctrine. That is Paul's message to Titus and the pastors and church leaders in Crete. Let's keep going. Notice also Paul's message to the older men in Christ's church. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. To our older men in here, know that you play a pivotal role role in the church. The church needs mature Christ followers with years under their belt. Now I need to say, I need to stress there, mature Christ followers. Just because you have years under your belt does not mean you are wise and in a position of influence. Paul is talking here about those who have years to their life but have also, get this, learned life lessons in those years. Those who have matured and grown in godliness. He says they're to be sober-minded. One who thinks clearly. One who is disciplined in the way he thinks. He is able to keep the main thing the main thing and, and work through issues wisely in accordance with the word and shows restraint, doesn't simply react without thinking through the, the consequences. A man who has learned a lot over the years from victories and defeats and can provide a lot of clarity when decisions need to be made. They're also to be dignified. They respond in ways that are appropriate and mature. Oftentimes, the manner in which you respond in a difficult situation is as important as the decision you make. Well, I've learned that over the years. It's important how we respond. Older men who have years under their belt and life lessons learned in those years who are mature spiritually have learned how to carry themselves and confront people and make difficult decisions in a way in which people respect. They, they are able to disagree agreeably. He is also self-controlled. He is able to keep his emotions in check. He shows good restraint. He is sound in faith. He knows the Bible. And as a result, he thinks and speaks and lives in accordance with Scripture. He also has the ability to counsel others in accordance with the Word so that they live biblically. He is sound in love. Older, more mature Christ followers, they love well. The word love here, surprise, surprise, the word agape. It's not the conditional form of love that we often use that, that says, I will love you if you what? Fill in the blank, right? No, it says, I will love you regardless. It's an unconditional love of the will. It's a choosing love. It's the kind of love that God showed toward us in that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. Paul says, 
mature men love in this way. They love their wives in this way. They love their children and grandchildren in this way, God's people in this way. They love God's people in this way. Lastly, they persevere. They are steadfast. These men have been tried by fire and have not been crushed by it, but have endured and matured through difficulty. They have been tested and are proven. They, are, they, they have been through dark valleys and have not wavered in their faith. Those are the kind of guys that Paul says we need in our church leaning in and pouring in to the younger men to equip them and, and the lesser mature older men as well to equip them for what's to come so that they may endure and grow in godliness and minister to others. Guys, are you sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love? If not, guys, you need to be seeking the Lord's help on this, asking that He, by His grace, would do a much-needed work in your heart and life and give you the grace you need to mature and to be this kind of man. Not only does the church need older men with years in their life and life lessons learned in their years, but, but the church also needs older women as well. Let's look at Paul's message to the older women in Christ's church. Look at verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. To our older ladies in here, I'll tell you the same thing. I told the men, know that you play a key role, a pivotal role in the church and in God's kingdom work. The church needs mature, godly women with years under their belt and life lessons learned in those years who are mature. Paul says older women are to be reverent in behavior. The word reverent is the Greek word hieropopes. It means to be devout, pious, sold out to the Lord. It means to be priest-like. Paul calls for the older women in the church to be set apart in this way. Holy, representatives for Christ, examples to the younger ladies in the church. They are not to be slanderers. That's the Greek word diabolos, which is where we get our word devil. They should not be devilish in the way in which they speak. That should tell you how malicious gossip is. Satan is the father of lies, and he is a malicious slanderer. Reverent women who are priest-like, holy, devout, are not to be Slanderers. Think about how healthy the church would be if there was simply none of that going on at all with our men or our women. Paul says not to be slaves to too much wine, similar to what he said to the elders in chapter 1. They are not to be drunkards. They are to practice moderation in everything and not to be slaves to any substance. They're also to teach what is good. Like the men, the older men, they're to be well-versed in Scripture. They're to hold fast to the trustworthy Word and are to be faithful teachers of the Word. To whom? Paul tells us. To the younger 
lesser mature women in the church. We'll look at them in just a moment. But before we move on, I want to ask you this question to our older women in here now. Ladies, look at these characteristics. Are these true of you? Reverent? Pious? Priest-like? Set apart? Are you a teacher of what is good? Or are you a slanderer with moral issues who lacks self-control? To our ladies in here, take time to think on these things and, and, and think on where you are. Let God deal with you through His Word. If this is not true of you, confess your sin to God. Ask that, that He, by His grace, would do the much-needed work in your heart and life and grant you with the grace you need to mature to be this type of woman because that's what the church needs in a world gone wrong. Now let's look at Paul's message to the younger women in Christ's church. In verse 4, he tells the older, more mature women, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Before I get into this, first let me draw your attention to the end of this passage. Notice here that how we live as believers directly affects the way people view the Word of God. Do you see that? Being obedient to God, living our lives in accordance with His Word in all humility shows that we believe His Word to be true. We've said this before, but it's worth saying again and again. It's not important for us to simply have the right doctrine, to teach the right things. We have to have a life to match. If you want God to work through you faithfully, then you need to be faithful to Him, to His message. You better make sure your, your lifestyle matches that message. Let's look at what Paul says here to the younger women. First, love your husbands and your children. Wives, moms, do you realize that you show God's word to be true when you love your husbands and when you love your children unconditionally? When you choose to love your husband in a sacrificial, unconditional manner and you lovingly discipline your children, you faithfully instruct them and you pray for them, you also extend grace to them and show them mercy. Do you realize that when you're obedient to God in this way, you show God's word to be true? You show, you demonstrate, you put on display the great and unconditional way in which God has loved us through the person and work of His Son, Jesus. Ladies are also called to be self-controlled and pure. You're to remain committed to your husband, faithful to him. When you do, you put God's gospel on display for those around you. Notice what else? Working at home. Let's talk about this one, because this is an unpopular teaching in our world today, but it's biblical. 
Paul calls for the older women to train the younger women to fulfill their duty by working in the home. Many take offense at this. They try to explain away Paul's words here. Before we get into what Paul means here, there's something I want to say right off the bat that's very, very important. It's unfortunate today that this worldly belief that the role of a woman in the home is being archaic and barbaric and chauvinistic and unimportant has influenced so many in the church today. Because let me tell you this, the belief that one's vocation is more important than one's role in the home is as warped and ungodly and unbiblical a view as you'll find in our world today. Can I say, regardless of whether or not you have a job or not, whether you're male or female, no job is more important than one's relationship with their spouse and their responsibility as a parent. Nothing. Do you realize the state of things in our world today are the way that they are because the family is broken? It's in shambles. People are scared to mention it. Listen, the state of things in our society is a direct reflection of the state of things in the church. And the state of things in the church is a direct reflection of the state of things in the home. Another way of saying it is like this. So goes the home, so goes the church, so goes society, so goes the world. We can see how we're doing by just looking at society around us. So important. Parents, do you realize you've been put on this planet to know God and to make Him known and advance His kingdom? That's why you've been put here. Do you realize that this starts in the home? Do do you realize that you cannot make an impact in your family if your life is your vocation? Do you realize that if you do not make an impact for Christ in your family, the church will not be healthy. And if the church is not healthy, it will not be effective at pushing back the darkness in our world with the light of God's gospel. That's how important this is. Do you see that? Ladies, listen. The home, according to Scripture, is your domain, not because you're insignificant and unimportant. That's the message out there. That's the message you get in those magazines you pick up in the grocery store. Your domain is the home because God has called for you to be a pivotal player in His kingdom work. What's the two most important places in life? Can anybody tell me? Home and church. That's it. Your main focus should be the home. That is where you're to pour your life into others, which directly benefits the church and society. Does that mean you're confined there and can never leave? No. MacArthur says it like this. He says, the sphere of a woman's life is her home. That's her domain. It doesn't mean she has to be there 24 hours a day and can never leave. It is not that she is simply to be home, but that is her domain. 
She is not to neglect her duties in the home. Charles Swindoll says it in this way. Paul did not write this to prohibit women from working outside the home. We have examples in the New Testament of women doing that. He goes on to say this. Women in the church doing that. Swindoll goes on to say this. The term here is homemaker described in Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. She's an industrious, resourceful helper fully engaged in cultivating her family's well-being and helping to build a family legacy. I know we have ladies in our church who work and, and others who stay at home. The point is you want to be sure that you're not neglecting your primary role as wife and mother, keeper of the home, discipler of children for the spiritual health of the home, for the sake of the church and society and the world. And guys, don't think you're off the hook. You're not. I got scripture. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we're to be the chief disciplers in the home. You're going to read that this week. There are guys that I've met that view, yeah, the, the home's a wife's domain, work's my domain. Because I'm supposed to provide, right? Yes, you are, in accordance with Scripture. But while God calls for you to make provisions for your family, your home is your priority, not your vocation. Here's another character quality. I'll move on. Young women are to be kind. That word means what it says. They should be gentle, tender-hearted, merciful, thoughtful. Should also be submissive to their own husband. Another unpopular teaching in our world today. We're just rolling them out. Paul's giving them to us, so let's address it here. Some argue, oh, that's a cultural thing. Others argue, Paul just didn't like women. Boy, I wish I had a whole service just to prove you wrong on that. I could show you, believe me. Some say times have changed, so Scripture needs to. Well, when Paul was talking about a woman being submissive in 1 Timothy 2.11, for example, he goes away from the cultural context all the way back to creation. And he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul goes beyond culture all the way back to creation. Here's what you need to know first about submission, ladies. This has nothing to do with equality. That's another message you hear out there, and it's so ignorant. It's so easy to prove that wrong just by using your brains and working this out. It has nothing to do with equality. I'll give you an example. While I am scripturally the head of Leslie, my life is no more valuable than hers in God's eyes. While we're in authority over our children, we are equally God's children created in his image. It's not an issue of equality. It is, however, an issue of authority. We are equal in person. There is different authority. God lives in relationship with himself in this way as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Equally God. But there are different positions and authority in the Godhead. We, we see that. Paul tells us that. 1 Corinthians eleven three. 3. 
But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Get this. We see authority and submission in the way God relates to himself. So those bad words in our society, authority and submission, are actually divine qualities. Do you see how our world turns things on its head, flips it around and turns it upside down? Those are good words. God demonstrates this for us in the way he relates to himself. Ladies, when you live under authority in the home with your husbands and husbands, when you lead as a servant and love your wives as Christ loved the church, and when you live under the authority of Christ Jesus, your relationship reflects the character of God in his gospel. Now, why wouldn't you want that? The world doesn't want you to do that. But God does. Ladies, if you're here You've been too influenced by the world when it comes to the roles of men and women and if your priorities are out of whack or you value vocation more than you do your role in the home, pray that God would work in your heart and transform you into being a Titus 2 woman so that you would not defame the word of God but instead reflect the character of God in his gospel. Now let's talk to our younger men. Look at Paul's message to the younger men in Christ's church. He's real brief with the younger men here, but uh, there are some longer passages that deal with the guys. You're going to read that this week in Ephesians 5 and 6, so be sure and read that. But just a brief word here to the the younger men. Look at verse 6. Likewise, Titus, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Here Paul is instructing Titus to urge young men to be self-controlled like the older men. Show restraint, be disciplined, resist temptation, keep your emotions in check. And then he calls for Titus to not simply teach these things, but example these things. He tells Titus in verse 7, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Show them, Titus, what a Christ-lived, Christ-like life looks like in your teaching. Show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. That cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. He basically tells Titus, make sure your Christian life is consistent with this Christian message. Show integrity and dignity when you teach. Walk the talk and make sure your teaching is sound and biblical. If you do that, Paul says, your message will prevail. It will be successful. You'll put your opponents to shame if if your message matches your life, if you have a life to match. I love this MacArthur quote. Look at this up on the screen. This is great. He says, The credibility of the Christian gospel is tied to the integrity of the lives of those who claim it. So true. Let me read it again. The credibility of the Christian gospel is tied to the integrity of the lives of those who claim it. Older men and women, younger men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, children, we got our work cut out for us, don't we? We need God desperately to do that work in our heart and life. 
for us to work out what he is working in us. Last point. Paul's message to the bond servants in Christ's church. Now, some think it's strange here that bond servants are mentioned by Paul in the teachings of, of men and women and wives and, and husbands and parents. He often mentions bond servants as well. And some question that. Here's uh, where context helps us. In this day, slaves made up a third of the population in the major cities in the Greco-Roman world. And they were an integral part of the family. These household bond servants would uh, uh, have meals with the family. If they were average churchgoers, they would go to church with them. So they were seen as being a part of the family. So this would not have been strange for those in Paul's day to hear. Now, before we get into this passage, I have some explaining to do here by way of context. This is a very challenging passage for us today for our Western minds. But let me say this first. We have, we have a bad habit of reading and understanding the Bible through our own cultural lens, reading it with our context in mind. Listen, we've got to understand that while this book that we have was written by God with a greater audience in mind, it was also written by human authors to a, an audience, a particular audience, at a particular time, in a particular place. So we've got to understand what the context is so that we can better understand the text. It's one of the challenges I have every week. I've got to stand in between. I've got to have one foot in the world of Scripture and one foot in East Texas and, and work on that and interpret what the text is saying to the original audience and then make proper application as well. So we need to do that here. Many who have read these texts, they, they often filter it through the way they think of slavery in the Western world. And so when they read Titus 2, 9 through 10, those images come into their head and they panic thinking that God's word supports this sort of oppressive and abusive slavery system. That is not the case. In fact, God speaks against it in his word. Again, I wish I could have the whole or half the sermon to uh, just show you that because we could see that for sure. There were some major differences with slavery in this day. One, people were not enslaved due to race in this day. Some were prisoners of war, but others were slaves by choice. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. They were bond servants by choice for life because in this day, when you're a bond servant, you had a roof over your head, you had three hot meals, you also had health care and, and possibly even education. It was not a bad gig. But there were some rulers who were abusive to their slaves, and God addresses that. It's condemned in Scripture. So people hear that, and they say, well, why didn't Paul condemn it? Why didn't Paul push to abolish slavery? Why didn't Paul push for social change? I mean, the Roman Empire was pretty terrible at this time. Why didn't Paul champion that? You ever thought about that? He didn't. While I believe that Paul understood standing against social evil is good, listen, Paul knew spreading the gospel so that hearts are changed is better by far. Heart change is what truly brings about social change, right? 
We've seen cultures change through the mission movement, through the gospel advancing. History tells us that. So Paul speaks to the heart, and when hearts are changed, Paul then speaks to the situation. He often did this with, with slaves and their masters. When they became believers, Paul spoke into that situation. He taught about that relationship and sought to really transform it into what we know today as more of an employer-employee relationship, which is why a lot of pastors make that comparison and, and use this as an example for that today. Let's look at it. Verses 9 and 10, we're almost finished. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Just like employees under the authority of their boss, household bond servants were under the authority of their master and they were to live under that authority. Why? For the sake of the master in the home? No, what is he saying? Paul says this type of behavior adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior. He also speaks to the importance of household bond servants being respectful in speech, well-pleasing and not argumentative. And also speaks of the importance of them having good Character, not pilfering or embezzling money, mishandling money, not being dishonest, but serving faithfully in humility, showing all good faith. So doing, Paul explains that bond servants through serving as God's children in that role can be used by God just as men and women, old and young, they can be used to reflect God's great character and His great gospel through their great faithfulness. All right. We got to stop. But before we go, let me end with this. It doesn't take long for us to examine our society and know that the relationships we see in our society today with men, young and old, women, young and old, husbands and wives, parents and children, it's real easy for us to observe and see today. It doesn't take long to see that our relationships are broken. They are. Not like this. Broken. The reason why is because of sin. God tells us at the very beginning of the book that when our relationship with God was shattered due to our sin, so was our relationship with one another. That's why in the chapter after the fall, you have a brother killing another brother. Things have gone horribly wrong. We see people treating one another terribly in our, in our world today. Relationships are broken. What's the answer? How do we fix it? Well, believers, for you the answer is you need to be dependent upon God to work in your heart and life. You need to be spending time with him, communing with him in prayer and in the study of his word. And you need to pray that he, through his spirit, through his word, would transform your heart and life. That he would make you a peacemaker. You need to pray that God would give you the grace needed to do what Paul says do in Romans 12, 18. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If you're here this morning and you're a non-believer, 
Christ is not Lord of your life, you're wondering how to fix this issue, my answer for you is very, very simple. You need Jesus. For you to repair this broken relationship with one another horizontally, you must first have this relationship with God fixed vertically through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I urge you to do so today. Bow your knee to King Jesus. Make Him Lord and be saved. Let's pray together.